9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am at an undisclosed location in Washington, D.C. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, who is someplace? Where are you, Rosa? In Alexandria, in Georgetown? I'm I'm uh, in Washington D.C. in my office at Georgetown Law. And is it a spacious office full of leather chairs and, and mm, law books? Mm, law books, yeah. <laughs> Not so much on the leather chairs, um, but uh, I do have a sink in my office, which almost nobody else has. I have a I can I can run water anytime I want to. I have to tell you, one of the biggest things I learned about the government. I'd been in the government when I was like 21, 22. I was the press secretary to a congressman. And then when I came back in first as the deputy undersecretary of commerce, the, the deputy undersecretary's office connected to the undersecretary's office. And we had a private bathroom. And people just, they were out of their minds with jealousy. That we well, did yeah. not have to share the bathroom with, with the, the 2400 other the yeah, the 2,400 other members of the International Trade Administration. Um, yeah, no, it, it was it was it was probably the high point of my government career. Actually, <laughs> well, I don't have a bathroom, but I do have I have my sink, I have my little mini fridge, and I have my microwave. Uh, and the bathroom a bathroom with a shower is next door to my office, so I'm in pretty good shape. Holy, I could live here. You guys live large at Georgetown University Law School. Um, and we also have with us, although I think he may be fixing up a uh, caramel macchiato or whatever. Yeah, he has, I, right? I'm, I'm back with my straight, old-fashioned, uh, simple espresso. And and did you prepare this for yourself, or did your staff have it done for you? Yeah, uh, it was a it was an auto espresso, which you know is a novel thing for me, but it seems to smell correct. You're a man of the people. Speaking of being a man of the people, I just like to check in on this every week with you, Ed, because honestly, I don't really quite get what's going on. But something happened with the um, the Labor Party and Brexit, and things seem to be changing a little bit. I don't mean the people leaving. I mean them changing the position on the vote. What's going on? Are you guys going to pull back from the brink of catastrophe? Uh, it's... Not inconceivable. I mean, what, what Theresa May has done is she set up three consecutive days of very high stakes votes next week. Um, one on uh, whether Parliament now, after having rejected her deal heavily a couple of months ago, now accepts it. It's almost certain to be rejected. If that fails, then the following day, Parliament will vote on whether it wants a hard no deal Brexit. That's almost certainly going to be rejected by similarly huge margins in which case she then gets to day three, and that's a vote on extending Article 50, meaning a stay of execution on Brexit, which is supposed to happen on March the 29th. And she will ask for another two, three months um, um, extension, which Parliament will readily agree to, having rejected the first two. Question is whether Europe will agree to this if Britain doesn't have a plan with what to do 
um, with this time. And, you know, if May is just going to say, well, I'll use that extra time to go back to Europe and say, look, I don't think I asked you carefully enough the previous 179 times that I asked about this backstop uh, with the Northern Irish border with the Republic of Ireland. And Europe, um, Europe is not going to give any different answer, which is no, the backstop has to be hard and indefinite um, because we cannot risk um, a border coming back and ruining peace in that island. Um, so what will that plan be um, uh, that would persuade Europe to agree to a stay of execution? Uh, and I think this is where the positive scenario comes in. It, it, it would have to be um, a people's vote, a, a referendum, um, whereby um, you know, there's a choice of three options, um, hard Brexit, Theresa May's plan, um, or um, remain in, in Europe what I call the stay, may, or D-day options. Um, <laughs> and um, if, if remain by some miracle, you know, um, gets over 50% in that vote, then we could, we could actually just wipe the last two and a half years slate clean. How it would that work though, Ed? Can you talk us through what, the, what would have to happen for a vote like that to occur and what would... And if you have a, a, a vote that splits things three ways, is there a mechanism to sort of structure a runoff between the two top options? Or like how, I, I, don't, I don't understand. That seems like a good idea to have a new referendum, at least from the outside, from the outsider's perspective. But, but what are the mechanics? Well, the mechanics, um, I think, would have to be that everybody doesn't just vote for their first preference, but they give a second preference. And if in the vote none of the three options get more than 50 percent, then the one that comes third, um, its second votes are redistributed until one of the others gets, mm -hmm. over, gets over 50. Um, uh, so, you know, you have a second preference vote distribution there. Um, the... the um, Intriguing thing, if May were a sort of more skilled tactician than she is, is that every Remainer will choose May as their second choice. Yeah. And every Lever will choose May as their second choice. Um, so if either of those two came third, um, then May would be home and free. Um, and we would have May's plan ratified by the people of Britain and it would become law and that would be it. And she would survive as prime minister. If she has the skill to thread this needle, um, you know, then I, a lot of us will change our judgment about uh, the kind of caliber politician and statesman she is. I don't think she has the skill. The one thing though that gives me um, hope um, the, there could be a second referendum, is that Jeremy Corbyn, who is at heart a Brexiteer, um, has been forced by his party, most of which, um, uh, most of whom are, are at heart Remainers, pro-Europeans, forced to concede that in certain circumstances, such as the one I've just outlined, um, that he would he would go back to, um he would support um a second referendum so it is you know in, in short answer um to your question it's the most fluid um sort of picture it gets more fluid all the time it gets it's always been hard to predict but it gets harder all, all the time to predict and that's good news um because a year or so ago most people would have predicted that brexit's unavoidable and and now well not so much it, it's it's possible this could be reversed. Hmm. Well, Rosa, does that make you feel better that 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 if England, which was really the most self-destructive government in the world, um, 
might find its way out of this mess. We, who are second worst, um, uh, also had hope. Uh, yes, it does make me, me feel like I'm going to retain the tr of optimism, at least on a provisional basis. Um, I, I mean, I guess, I guess the the question, the outcome that Ed suggests that Theresa May could could achieve if she was clever, um, which is getting a 50 percent for for her plan as negotiated as the second choice option for the largest number of people. I'm not entirely sure that that's still a good option for anybody. It still seems like a crummy option, just not quite as crummy as a no-deal Brexit. Um, but I suppose um, if our threshold for success is low, is avoiding a no-deal Brexit, and it looks like the odds of that maybe are going up slightly, um, I guess we should just be happy and and hope that if the British public uh, is capable of learning from it, from their collective mistakes, that perhaps the American public, too, will be able to learn from its mistakes. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I mean, Ed, there's an opinion poll the day that we uh, are recording this episode that shows 46 percent of the American people and something like 82 percent or uh, so of the Republican Party support President Trump that his support actually went up in February. And I'm like, you know, are they holding part of America underwater and so they can't breathe? I mean, what is, you know, what is going on? Is it just me? Do I do I have to think that I'm losing my mind? Would, help me, Ed. Uh, well, I, you know, I think part of it is, although we are all quite rightly expecting the economy to decelerate, and actually it's showing early signs of decelerating, um, people feeling the effects of that is, a, is what economists call a lagging indicator. So you know, unemployment is continuing to fall, and it's at sort of just below 4%, which is historic low. Um, and, you know, there is some modest wage growth. You know, we are 10 years into uh, the recovery here. So it's it's one of the longest expansions on record. I don't believe Trump um, deserves um, any of the credit for that. I think this has chiefly been about um, uh, Ben Bernanke uh, and Janet Yellen. Um, uh, but the plain fact is that, that that's the first point that that's the first pulse that americans check when they ask uh, you know if they're approving of a president's performance is well how am i feeling economically uh, and the answer is not brilliant but it's slightly less bad than they felt two years ago and four years before that and so forth so i think trump is benefiting from that um uh and i don't think he's going to be benefiting from that um in a, a year from now, I think the, the economy, you know, was 3% last year because of this methadone boost of the big tax cut. That's wearing off very rapidly. The stock market, you know, it, it's clearly it, the bull runs over and it's now on a plateau at best. Um, and so that's probably going to go down. Um, uh, I, I think we're going to get 2% growth in 2019, which is 50%, uh, which is 30% lower than last year's. And we're going to get um, other signs of economic distress. So I, I don't think those numbers are sustainable. Having said that, though, you know, Trump's floor has been very high. His ceiling's been very low um, of support, but his floor has been very high. There is a bedrock of 40 percent or so of America that, like Trump, come what may. And that suggests whatever happens 
in, you know, stuff that merits an impeachment um, process or, or otherwise, that whatever happens, 2020 is going to be competitive. Um, and I don't know. I, I'd like. I'd, I'd like to think the answer to this question is no. I don't know whether you know this talk of socialism, and AOC's Green New Deal, and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, and Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All, and so forth. I don't know whether this has damaged uh, the Democrats. Um, you know, a, 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 as a sort of overall brand in the last um, two or three months. Um, and whether Trump's uh, attempts to sort of link the Democratic Party with Venezuela and that kind of socialism has, is, is showing up in the polls. Um, I, I'd like to think it isn't, because I think America does need a, a, a fairly radical debate um, on the left. Um, but it's quite possible that it is, because most Americans do not like the word socialism. I don't know, Rosa. You know, I'm feeling very out of it here. I, you know, people are constantly saying, oh, you really need to understand that 40%. And I'm thinking, well, actually, they're going to vote for Trump no matter what. They're going to vote. They're willing to vote for, you know, corruption, betrayal, incompetence, stupidity. Why do I have to understand them? <laughs> well, um, depends on whether you're right or not that they're going to vote for incompetence, betrayal, and stupidity. You know, if in fact we have a group of people who are perfectly happy to vote for those things, knowing that that's what they are, then probably there's not much understanding that we can do as opposed to just opposing. But but I, I'm I'm reluctant. I despite everything, I'm I'm reluctant to declare forty percent of our fellow Americans utterly lost to good sense and good values. Um, I, 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 reluctant when there's so much evidence to suggest they are. Because I think it is more complicated than that. I think that when you get these focus groups of people who voted for Trump and still say they support Trump, that there, yes, absolutely. Are there some people in there who, you know, nothing you or I ever say or anybody ever says is going to persuade them to reconsider their views? Yeah, there are. But there are also people in there who are ignorant or, you know, still just not really engaging or who are holding on to certain, you know, to me, fantasies of what Trump may yet do that to them outweigh all the many negatives that they can acknowledge. So, so no, I do still think it's worth trying to understand that group and trying to engage and trying to figure out what's motivating them. Um, I also think, I mean, here's the, I don't know if this is reassuring or, or makes things worse from your perspective. Um, I think one of the lessons of the continued solid support for Donald Trump within a segment of the American population um, also cuts against what you just said when you said, oh, Americans don't like the idea of socialism. The, the, the continued support for Donald Trump suggests that there are a lot of Americans, for better or for worse, who, you know, don't know much about history, don't know much about nothing, are perfectly happy to abandon, uh, you know, nearly a, a century of viewing the Russians as the bad guys, for instance, to say, oh, you know, I admire Putin, I admire the Russians, it's all fine, it's all good. Um, that's pretty astonishing, right? That there are all these things that Trump is doing that that suggests that lots of Americans either didn't notice or don't care about decades of American political tradition. Uh, when it comes to Trump, I think most would say, "Well, that's a bad thing." But 
I think on the other side, on the you know the, the assumption that Americans don't like socialism assumes various things, such as Americans have the slightest idea what socialism is, Americans have any sense of historical context. You know, so I, I think it's much more of a free for all at the moment on both right and left, uh, which which again is, you know, that creates both real opportunities. You know, it's the first opportunity I think we have had an American, the American political discourse for, for many decades to really have a different kind of conversation and a much a much more free-ranging conversation about what kind of country do we want to be, what kind of policies do we think are feasible, and a conversation that is not uh, sort of shackled by ideological presumptions. So that's a good thing. Uh, you know, the, the flip side of that, obviously, is that it's, it's hard to have conversations about where we want to go when you don't have a whole lot of common reference points. Um, and But I think that, that for better or for worse, that's that's where we are right now on both the right and the left. Yeah, I, I just uh, joined that. I don't I don't think Americans, I mean, if you look at the polls, it's quite interesting. They, they like most people and voters, um, want us to have their cake and eat it. Um, they would like more effective um, government help, um, you know, across the board in terms of healthcare, in terms of education, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of support for rainy days. Um, but they don't want to pay higher taxes. That's, you know, typical of any electorate anywhere. We want to have our cake and eat it. But what I think that um, is true of older generations of Americans is that the word socialism is very much branded in, in, in their head as a bad thing. Um, and that there is some evidence that Trump's attempt to brand um, the, the Democratic Party with the Venezuela brand, uh, the socialist brand, you know, uh, is having some effect. It's against the sort of uh, pragmatic middle middle ground temper of a lot of older generations. You know, the irony is that there is absolutely no overlap between what Maduro is practicing in Venezuela, you know, and what Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, for that matter, is recommending America do um, if they become president. Uh, there, the, the complete state ownership of the economy, of the commanding heights of the economy, which is what socialism traditionally means, it's seizing control of the means of production, is not something I've heard any Democrat talk about. What they're recommending and debating is... Uh, Scandinavian Rhineland capitalism, mixed economy, um, very sensible and I think highly necessary measures, which I think that we owe to Bernie Sanders um, the fault of calling socialism. He should have called himself a social democrat. Instead, he called himself a democratic socialist. And so we have this word socialist, I think, completely inappropriately um, in circulation. But the irony is that you know, there's probably more in common psychologically and in terms of politics and in instinctual leadership between Trump and Maduro than there is between anybody in the democratic field and yeah, Maduro. Absolutely. You know, Trump, Trump, Trump has these authoritarian impulses that brooks no dissent and um, will bend the truth to suit um, whatever purposes he has. Um, that's that's not what anybody in the Democratic Party is recommending. I don't know, you know, Rosa, it seems to me, um, I'm, I'm viewing this whole session now as a therapy session. I like that Scandinavian stuff, you know, that, you know, or Holland, you know, where they got health care and they train people and they, you know, if you if, if life turns against you, the country takes care of you. And yeah, taxes are a little bit higher, but especially for people who are making a ton of money. Um, those societies all seem to be doing pretty well. And and as it happens, those Northern European societies actually are more 
fiscally responsible than we are by a lot. Um, so they they have these protections and they're fiscally responsible and they're uh, happier with life. Um, and, um, you know, what's not to like? Yes, indeed, David. I'm, I'm right there with you. Looking pretty good right now. Well, so at least when in comparison. Went, when you went to Amsterdam, when your mother won that award, did you think, let's stay? I, I, I think that every time I'm in uh, Northern Europe, as well as every time I'm in Canada. <laughs> well, they're very similar. You know, they, they're these Northern tier countries have developed an approach that actually works pretty well. And the United States has lagged and as you know, we're different from the world on healthcare, we're different from the world on taxation, we're different from the world in terms of the social contract. Um, and, you know, I, you know, you, we talk about Bernie and AOC and, you know, these other people on this debate. Um, and, and, and it's starting a, a pull to the left. But don't you think part of it is that our form of capitalism is so corrupted, so unfair, has driven inequality to such an incredible extreme that that's actually, you know, Trump got elected not because these people were proto-capitalists, but because they were pissed off at the system and they thought he'd change it. And now it's clear that he's part of that system. And so there's another movement of people who are saying, let this system is, is, is corrupt. Let's you know, let's let's fix that and move more in this direction of a more humane system. Yes, David. What? <laughs> it's just so my rant it goes nowhere. It's just no, yes. no, no. I I think you're I think you're right. Um, I think it'll be it, if I put on if I take off my I'm a citizen and I'm terrified hat and I put on my you know, I'm an anthropologist and this is fascinating hat, uh, then it is fascinating. It, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Um, clearly, lots of people on the both right, both on right and left feel that the system we have is just broken, uh, possibly, possibly irreversibly broken. That's pushing, that's pushed people in different directions, though. You know, some have gone in the direction of, you know, okay, fine. In that case, it's winner take all. And I better try to make sure I'm one of the haves. And it's pushed others in the direction of, wow, we need to really th rethink this because we don't want to become a nation that is split between uh, a tiny group of have-it-alls and a very large group of have-almost-nothings. Um, so I don't know how it's going to play out. But but I, I think not only just, I think, all of our intuitions, but a lot of the recent public polling does indeed suggest that across the political spectrum, Americans uh, are extremely dissatisfied with the choices as they currently exist. I mean, one, yeah, go on. Well, just just sort of one note uh, of of caution there for, that that I feel at any rate, um, which is that you know, let's say we get a Democratic nominee who has Sanders type. Um, promises, um, not Sanders himself, probably, um, but um, somebody like Kamala Harris, whoever it might be, and who's, who's basically through the primary process adopted a lot of his clothing. Um, I, like, I like it. Um, my eyes are closed and I can envision that. You can envision it. Um, and this would, 
you know, this would entail uh, Medicare for all. This would entail um, public and um, free public um, college. Um, this would entail student debt forgiveness. Um, quite possibly, you know, some form of universal basic income. It's not inconceivable. Um, now, the the thing, these are all perfectly reasonable things, though I would argue against UBI. Um, but these are all perfectly reasonable things to have and desirable in terms of single-payer health care and more affordable college. Very desirable things that cost money. They do cost a lot of money. Now, I assume that nominee would have gone further than Sanders did in 2016 and actually explained how they would pay for it. Um, and if they were honest about that, it would it would involve not just taxing the very rich. I mean, it would, of course, have to include taxing the very rich and wealth taxes, maybe financial transaction tax, maybe, um, you know, a bigger hit on um, the cross-border earnings of um, American multinational companies. But none of that would be enough um, to fund these kinds of programs, which are, you know, they're enormously expensive. They're worth it, but they're very expensive. Um, and that involves broad-based tax increases. Um, so you can do it in a steeply progressive way, and I believe that that's how it would be pitched. But you would have an experiment here because all these systems we're talking about, the Dutch, the Germans, the Scandinavians and so forth, they built these systems out you know, from the rubble of war when they were remaking the world anew um, from scratch, where all kinds of quite radical things um, and changes and reforms were possible and highly desirable across the population. America in 2019 is not Europe in the 1940s. And so this would be an experiment um, to see whether people would be prepared to grit their teeth and say, yeah, I, will, I would be prepared to pay 40% more of my income to the taxpayer um, to produce a better society for all of us. Um, and more, more to the point, I would trust the federal government to do that competently. These are quite mm -hmm. big propositions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think those are different propositions. It is interesting to note that you've referenced Germany. And of course, uh, Germany was set out on that path with American guidance. It was Americans who were giving the Germans advice that they had to have workers represented on the boards of companies. It was it was it was it was Americans who sort of helped set up that society. But let's change the subject. Rosa. How come the Israelis get to indict their prime minister, but we can't indict our president? Doesn't it seem unfair? <laughs> it does seem unfair. It does, David. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we'll wait and see. Wait and see. Um, I think there are more forms of accountability in the world than just uh, uh, criminal prosecutions. Um, and I, I think that we can still hold out some hope that there will be accountability for Donald Trump, uh, even if, as is very likely to be the case, um, overwhelmingly likely to be the case, there's there's never an actual indictment, at least not while he's in office. Um, I'm going to predict, I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'm going to predict, and I sure hope I'm right, that he loses in 2020. Uh, I'm further going to predict that some of these uh, investigations, particularly not the Mueller investigation, but uh, Southern District of New York, for instance, may ultimately end in indictments when he is out of office. Uh, and I'm going to predict that he he leaves office in a state of total ignominy. That I can't pronounce that word because I'm tired. Um, but you get the idea. Ignominy. 
Ignominy, thank you. It's like it's like memnonics or onomona also, which I can't say. There's certain words I can't say. Yeah, well, you, you know what I mean. Up with the mnemonics so that you can oh. pronounce. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, that, that's it's 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 true. In fact, Ed, you know the way it's starting to look to me. I mean, the Dems, you know, to, and the day we taped this. Jerry Nadler has gone out and sent out 81 letters requesting info. There, it seems to me they're taking a very methodical approach to hearings, which oddly will last into next year's reelection campaign. And that to the extent to which any kind of move towards impeachment takes place, it'll happen during next year's election campaign. And it seems like this is part of a a strategy. No one's called me up and told me this, but doesn't it? Aren't all sort of signs pointing in the direction that things are going to reach maximum or at least peak over these four years of toughness for Trump, just as he's got to dig in and campaign? Yeah, and that that of course will you know without prejudging the kinds of um, things they're going to turn up, and I think there's going to be so much. You know, it's going to be an extraordinary series of investigations and hearings and dramatic moments, such as we saw with Michael Cohen last week. There's going to be a rolling sort of smorgasbord um, for my profession um, and for and for the American public. Um, that um, that in 2020, and of course we have the Mueller report. That that in 2020. Um, you know, just on the eve of the election, as we're approach, as the full re-election Trump campaign is underway, already is arguably, um, uh, that now you take the risk of starting an impeachment proceeding. I, I mean, uh, my my guess is that Nancy Pelosi is not going to have changed her mind between now and then about the strategic trade-offs involved here. Um, that uh, this could be a gift to Trump. Um, if um, she attempts to convert this into an impeachment process, which is bound to fail because it will run aground in the Senate. So um, my, my guess, and I guess to some degree my hope, is that they will lay this out to the American people and say, this is, what, this is what's happened in the last four years. This is the president um, that, who's asking you to re-elect him. Um, uh, we're, we're not going to be irresponsible, you know, by attempting to um, derail Washington and impeach him. We're saying this is your choice. You can do better than impeach. You can eject. Um, uh, now, of course, that presupposes the Mueller report, which you know may or may not be imminent. Um, you know, um, doesn't come out with that with um, an impeachable moment, and by some accounts, he will. Um, but uh, I, I suspect. 2020 will be a peak. It will be a denouement, but the, the actual denouement will be on election day. Just one other point around that is there are all kinds of deeply shocking things that have been going on in broad daylight under our noses since Trump, uh, well, since before Trump um, became president. And it's just impossible because there's so many of them to recollect from memory and have a sort of proper tally, you know, to produce on a show like this right now. But you can sort of pick two or three of the most recent. I mean, think of Jared Kushner's 
security clearance. Um, you know, think of General Kelly's memo about that. Think of the recent flurry of trademarks Ivanka Trump has received, um, it, not just in China, but elsewhere. Think of uh, Russia. Um, think of, um, you know, the uh, tweet that Trump sent over the weekend about his golf course in Scotland um, and linking his debt repayment um, to a legal case he's had with the Scottish government to the special relationship. That kind of brazen sort of reverse emolument situation by Twitter. I mean, we are so inured, we are so numbed, it is so normalized that I, you know, that I worry that, you know, what to us is, who are full-time in a way on this within the Beltway, what to us is profoundly shocking and worrying to our bones is just a completely normalized background noise to a lot of people out there. Um, and I know we had this debate a couple of two or three podcasts ago. Um, uh, you know, I think that ultimately the decision is based on what people out there think. Well, <laughs> it's kind of hard to argue with that. I mean, well, no, I, th I mean, people will argue that it's up to what Congress decides, you know, what Nancy Pelosi and others decide is the right thing to do. The right thing to do is not necessarily the pragmatic thing to do. Well, yeah, that's true. But, you know, Rosa, it seems like Nancy Pelosi has handled this with a lot of restraint. She has. And um, I, I have gone from a uh, someone who is very far from a Nancy Pelosi fan to to someone with a good deal of, of uh, grudging admiration for how well she has played this so far. I think she's been extremely skillful. Uh, and you know we'll see what we'll see if this continues. But um, she's been she's been restrained and she's been very smart about how she goes about doing this. Um, I, I think Ed is right. I don't think she's suddenly going to change and say, "Oh, I, I want to immediately start impeachment proceedings." Um, so my guess is we're going to have more of the same with Nancy Pelosi, which is not necessarily a bad thing, at all. Yeah. Well, it's no, it's it's not. I, I mean, I think her strategy is pretty straightforward. It's on the one hand, conduct these things very carefully, don't get into impeachment prematurely, build the evidence, let the cases sort of make their own arguments to people. And then on the other, do things like passing common sense gun control and passing you know, election finance reform and a bunch of other things that they know the Senate will ignore, but next year they're gonna be able to go out and say the House did all this, this was our agenda. We actually were trying to get things done. If you give us a Democratic Senate or you give us a Democratic president, we actually can change the way the world works. And that seems like an in incredibly sort of sensible to me. I think it's very important to have um, a practical agenda that gives a foretaste. Of course, all of this will be vetoed by Trump, but even supposing any of it had a chance of going through the Senate. But it's still very important, as you say, for the Democrats to show what they would do if they controlled the first and second branches of, of, of government. Um, I don't, I, 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 that wasn't my musical interlude, but a, a musical interlude is always welcome. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's always it's always cheering. Um, so I, I mean, I agree. They, they 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 also need to have some idea of what healthcare reform would look like, over and above, um, you know, protecting the pre-existing conditions stuff. That's sort of a minimal defensive measure with the Obamacare 
fight. But we we need we need to get some kind of a you know a median position of where the Democrats are on the sort of larger, grander scale reform. Yeah, I I I I, I think that's right. You know, it's interesting though, Rosa, as you look at this. Other than the Russia case, and you know, we talk a little bit about North Korea. As we look out into next year, once again, it's it's it, more than ever. It seems like this is going to be a domestically driven discussion, and international issues are are not going to figure in it. I think that's likely. I think that's usually the case. Um, most American presidential elections are decided based on domestic issues. Uh, I think you get you get occasional exceptions, um, like during the peak of the Iraq War, for instance. Um, but things things internationally have to seem both very bad, very urgent, and very directly linked to domestic affairs for Americans to really sit up and take notice. Um, w barring that, uh, I think that the old, it's the economy stupid, still tends to be the deciding factor. Uh, yeah, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Now, Ed, just an, you know, another one of the, the, the stories that, that could crop up in this, of course, is that the Dems seem very intent to going into Trump holdings. Uh, and that brings us to uh, not just the Russians, but the Saudis. And that brings us to another of the big stories of the past week, which is Jared Kushner's security clearance, because he's been the one dealing with the Saudis. Uh, now it turns out, per the New York Times, that there's an American citizen in Saudi prison that has been tortured. Um, and it seems like Kushner has been giving a message to the Saudi leadership that we don't really care whether they torture or murder Americans. You remember, you remember Rex Tillerson when he was talking about human rights saying, uh, these are our values, they are not our policies, um, which was a huge shift because of course, human rights has been an American policy across administrations um, uh, for every administration up until, up until Trump. Um, Kushner was last week the first American official, Trump administration official, to meet Mohammed bin Salman since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi last October. Um, the reason he went to meet him uh, was because he needs Saudi Arabia's support for this um, a, a completely ridiculous sort of pie in the sky peace plan that he thinks that um, he's going to persuade the Palestinians to accept. And one of the ways he thinks he's going to persuade them to accept it, perhaps the only way, you know, the only long shot he can pull off here um, for, for this so-called deal of the century that he's been working on for the past year um, is to get the Saudis, A, to give it their blessing and, and, um, and then hope the rest of the Arab world follows Saudi Arabia's lead and B, more importantly, to then flood the zone with money, because the plan is all about massive sort of tens of billions of dollars of, of um, money for um, the moderate Palestinians, um, for Jordan and for others um, to sweeten um, the deal. Uh, I think, though, that, you know, the, um, the reason that he was denied um, top security clearance, um, it, both internally in the White House and by uh, and by the CIA, a separate 
level clearance by the CIA. The reason he was denied it is because of all these undisclosed foreign contracts and conflicts of business interest, um, con 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 conflict of interest um, business um, ventures that are ongoing, one of which is to do with um, Saudi Arabia, this, this harebrained scheme to circumvent American law to build um, civil nuclear power stations in Saudi Arabia um, by Westinghouse, which is owned by a company that, you know, to add to the complication of the story, bailed Kushner out of this massive $1.8 billion white elephant that his family had bought at 666 Fifth Avenue in New York, the most expensive piece of real estate um, in America. And that was going to sink the Kushner family. Kushner was bailed out. A company owned by the company that bailed him out and bought that property is now Westinghouse, um, you know, part of the deal that Kushner is lobbying for. I mean, that, that in itself is an entire season of investigations um, uh, for, for, for any kind of Congress in any kind of era. It is a, in itself a crisis of a presidency that this is the son-in-law of the president who is operating with impunity on security clearance that he does not merit. Um, for um, for reasons of of personal and reputational gain, um, it's 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 uh, almost the most fascinating wheel within all these wheels is the Kushner story. It's certainly one of them. We got to wrap up here, but Rose, I want to give you the last word uh, with regard to this one issue by framing it as follows. You know, the Saudis say we need them. That's clearly an overstatement. Trump says we need the Saudis. But isn't there a point where a country that tortures Americans and kills American residents and so forth so offends us that we ought to be saying to them, no more normal relations until you start dealing with human human rights in a more respectable way? Or is that just wacky left-wing democratic thinking? <laughs> No, I think it's it's very pragmatic too. I think I think Saudi Saudi hardline policies it's not just a matter of of preference or values that they have an impact in the world an impact that radicalizes uh, you know that there are clear links between Saudi policies and the rise of of extremist Islamic terror. Um, you know, it's it we can't afford to have them as our closest friends and let their actions go unexamined for very pragmatic reasons, even aside from all of the all of the values-based reasons to be concerned about it. So no, I, I mean, it's long overdue. Uh, the Saudis have been important to the US, but for many, many, many years now, I think uh, the, the cost-benefit analysis uh, has started to tilt in the direction of more costs than benefits. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's time to have a bit of a timeout with the Saudis and to start to send a message, not the one that Trump is sending the Saudis, not the one he's sending the North Koreans, not the one that he's sending despots everywhere, um, that, 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 that values are, are no longer just something that's apart from policy, but as Ed points out, are reintegrated with it. Um, anyway, we've run out of time. That's too bad. There's a lot more to discuss, but we'll discuss it next week because Deep State Radio never goes away. We're always here. You can always find us at deepstateradionetwork.com. You can find all our podcasts and 
other kinds of content. In a couple of weeks, we'll be announcing some new kinds of content, which will be kind of cool and fun um, as we, um, you know, plan the next phase of Global Conquest, which is really what this is all about. Uh, and of course, the reason that you will welcome our Global Con Conquest is because of leadership of the kind you would get from Empress Rosa Brooks or em Emperor Ed Luce, um, who you should you should welcome as 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 your new overlords, right, guys? <laughs> I, I I would agree with that. Yeah, of course. Um, well, um, so ponder that, folks. Uh, have a have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa, and bye bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.